Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor and it's so good to have you guys with us here today. We are in our last week of of our series, Identity, but before we get to that, I've got a few things I want to share with you this morning. First, I want to tell you guys about next Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be a very, very special day here at the Gathering Church. It's going to be a really special day for me, and so that's the most important thing, and so I just want you to know, next Sunday, right here on this stage, uh, my pastor, one of my mentors, um, the guy who literally taught me how to preach for better or worse, uh, Pastor David Habisky will be speaking on this stage. He was my pastor out in San Jose, California at Echo Church, where I was before coming to Asheville to start this church. Um, and, uh, and I am so excited to have him share with us next week. He, he is a close friend. He will most likely have some very embarrassing stories about me to share with you, uh, and so you won't want to miss that. And I'm just telling you, David is an incredibly gifted communicator, uh, and we are so lucky to have him out here with us next week. So make sure that you come for that. Bring somebody with you it's going to be a great Sunday. And then right after that, October 14th, as Robbie just said, is going to be Vision Sunday. You do not want to miss Vision Sunday. This is going to be, the on Vision Sunday, October 14th, we are making a major announcement. The biggest announcement we've ever made as a church. You do not want to miss it. Make sure that you are here in person for that Sunday. It's going to be a great day. And then after that, we're starting a new teaching series called Simple Gospel, which would be an incredible series for your friends, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, for your family members. And so October is going to be a great month at the Gathering Church. I'm very excited for all that God is going to do over the next couple weeks. Uh, So today, we're finishing our series called Identity. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our changing culture here in the United States and in Asheville as a city. Uh, More and more, the culture that we live in stands in contrast to the way of Jesus. More and more, the world that we live in makes it uh, difficult and marginalizes Christianity, makes it difficult to live as a Christian. More and more, our beliefs, our expectations for one another, the, the tolerances that we have as a nation are shifting and changing. And as a Christian, the very center of my worldview, uh, the Word of God, the teachings of Jesus, are being challenged by the very city and country that I live in. Television and media present a worldview. Uh, Every family on every drama or sitcom on television uh, live a lifestyle that is apart from the church and apart from a Christian worldview. The common worldview of of our culture and our country is not one from a Christian background anymore, but rather one from a decidedly unchurched background. And so the question that we've been asking in this series is when culture shifts, who will we become? When culture shifts, who will we become? When the world we live in begins to change, will we allow it to change us as well? And if we decide not to, how do we stand firm in this culture? Do we go to war with it? Do we isolate ourselves from it? We've been studying the life of Daniel in the Bible to learn how to both stand firm and love well. Our hope 
is that if you're in here this morning and you follow Jesus, that we'll show you what it looks like to live in a culture that is changing, that is no longer the Bible belt that I grew up in, that is a world where Christianity is more and more marginalized. Our goal is to show you, if you are the Christian in that culture, how to stand firm and be an influencer of that culture, not to be influenced by it. How do you love well, even when it's difficult to do so? And if you are in this place this morning and you don't follow Jesus, it's okay. The gathering is a place you can belong before you believe. You're in the right place. Our goal this morning for you is that you would be able to understand a little bit more, not just of what you've seen of the church, because maybe it hasn't always been positive. Our hope is that this morning you would see who Jesus has called us to be, who we're meant to be, what it looks like to live in a world that contrasts the way of Jesus. Daniel was taken from his home in Jerusalem as a young man and brought to Babylonia when he was, where he was surrounded by culture, uh, beliefs, and lifestyles that stood in contrast to the way of Yahweh that he was raised in in Jerusalem. But Daniel, over 70 years of living in Babylon, living in a culture that did not believe in the same God he believed in, remained constant in standing firm and loving well. Throughout 70 years of living in this city, Daniel never compromised. He never challenged. He never turned. He never shifted. He always identified himself in the same way. And so our goal is to study his life and to learn how to do the same. Uh, last couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to stand firm. How do we stand firm? What does it look like when we stand firm? Is there a right way and a wrong way to stand firm? Last week, we talked about the Babylon mentality that still exists today, this, this mentality that this life is about me, that I'm here to serve me, to make my name great, to, to glorify me, to look out for me, that if I don't look out for me, nobody will. And, and we talked about how that's the Babylon mentality, but the way that we're called to live is different, that we're called to value others above ourselves, that we're called to walk in and live in humility, that we're called to serve God, not ourselves. And this week, what I want to talk about is what it really looks like for us to love well. Because as a follower of Jesus, I need to be in this culture. Not, a, not, not, not isolated from it, but a part of it. I need to be in it, but I need to not be influenced by it. Rather, I need to be an influencer of culture. Because you, either, you will either set the culture or reflect the culture. You will either be a thermostat, you'll adjust the temperature of the room that you're in, or you'll be a thermometer. You'll simply adjust to the temperature of the room that you're in. We will either set the culture or reflect the culture. And if we must set the culture, there is only one way to gain the sort of influence that we would need to in a world that doesn't believe what I believe. And that's through love. Galatians 5.6 says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know, there's a lot of Bible before that verse. But Paul comes in here and says the only thing that counts. Because all that Bible before that verse, without love, it doesn't mean anything. There's a, there's a mandate on us to learn how to love well. If this culture wants to antagonize me for being a preacher in this city, if your co-workers want to marginalize you for being a Christian in the workplace, if your family calls you names, resents you because you represent to them a bad experience they once had in church, we don't retaliate 
in antagonism. We retaliate in love because you cannot antagonize and influence at the same time. The moment you begin to retaliate, retaliate by antagonizing, you lose all the influence you have over the people that we are called to serve and that we are called to love. We have to learn how to love well. Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, a new command I give you. And it wasn't new. These guys just hadn't got it yet. He said, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus didn't say, by your Jesus fish, they will know you are my disciples. Jesus didn't say, by your, by your television choices, people will know you are my disciples. He doesn't say, by your arguments, they will know you are my disciples. He doesn't say, by your vote, they will know you are my disciples. Jesus says, by your love, they will know you are my disciples. Because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. See, I believe that my role as a follower of Jesus in this culture isn't to stand against this culture. It's to stand for Jesus, and it's to stand out in love. So for a minute, I want to break down one of my favorite passages. I call it the wedding passage because it's been read at every wedding that I've ever attended or, or, or held, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Look with me, verses 1 through 7. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. How many of us have talked to somebody and thought this is a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal? If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if even I have the faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. Do you take this person to be your lawfully wedded wife? All right, let's take a look. Let's break this passage down a little bit. And first, let's look at what Paul says we are without love. First, he says, without love, all I say is ineffective. Without love, all I say is ineffective. If I speak in tongues of men or angels, but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What you say does not matter if you don't say it in love. If you're going to let something about your life stand out, don't let it be the words that you've said. Let it be how well you've loved people. You see, we as a generation, as a culture of people, are getting more and more opinionated thanks to social media and 24-hour news networks. And because our opinions are now news, and because our opinions now have a platform that we don't have to stand in front of, now because these opinions are so widespread, we're beginning to believe that our opinions are a benchmark for the judgment of someone else's character. 
We're beginning to believe that our opinions are so important that they matter so much that the delivery of them is less important as to whether or not our opinions find an audience. And now we've got these platforms through social media to voice these opinions that we don't have to be held accountable for. And it's made us even worse at caring for one another through the words that we say. Recently, there was a news story of a a two-year-old who passed away. And her par- it, her, it was a story we've heard before. Her parents were at a party at a, a friend's house, and they had a pool. And there, there was a door to the outside that was unlocked. And, you know, you know the rest. The, the, the infant found their way outside. And there was this horrible outpouring for this couple. And, you know, it's one of those things, situations that is apparent. You don't entertain the possibility of it happening. You don't think about it because if you do, you'd panic about everything. You'd be worried about everything. You'd, you'd be stressed out about everything. And so, but, but every so often, one of these things comes to the news and we're forced to evaluate things as a parent, to evaluate how, how well we care. And, and so I was just broken for this couple and for their loss. And so I, I, I just... I went to a, they had set up a Facebook page for the little girl that had passed, and I just went to it to just grieve with the people that were hearing this story as well, and I saw what I expected to see there. I saw folks grieving, you know, people showing support, people trying to care for this, offering words of encouragement, you know, people without words to say, just, just offering support, all the things I expected to see in such a hard moment, but I also saw something I wasn't expecting to see. I saw a lot of people telling these parents all the things that they did wrong, all the things that they they should have done, all all the ways and reasons that they're bad parents because they allowed this to happen to their two-year-old, and I was getting fired up, man. I'm, I'm getting fired up right now talking about it, that, that people would say this, that they would put these opinions out on social media, that they would write this to the, these parents are going to be thinking about all the things they could have done differently every moment for the rest of their lives. They don't need you to write it, and so I, I'm getting mad, and I just want to go, I want to, I go on some of these Facebook pages because I want to know who these animals are. You know, I want to know if they live close enough to me for me to go visit them. You know what I mean? And so I'm, and so I'm looking at these Facebook pages. I'm all fired up, and I'm just clicking through Facebook, you know, at all these people. And you know what I saw when I clicked on their pages? I saw that it was parents, that it was siblings, that it, that it was neighbors, that it, that it was teachers, that it was business owners, that it was doctors and lawyers, that it was just regular people whose opinions were being voiced without love. Listen, just as a rule of thumb, this is a soapbox aside, but if you wouldn't say it in person, don't say it on social media. And if you would say it in person, you need to get some counseling. You need a little bit of help. Something is wrong with your heart. I'm telling you. Listen, what you say, if you say it without love, does not matter. It doesn't matter if what you say is right if you say it without love. A lot of times I'll hear people just making these offensive comments to others or, or these, these hurtful comments to others because that person has a political value or belief that is different than theirs. And they, they, just, and they would just say horrible things. I'd say, why are you saying that to this person? They'd say, well, I'm right and they're wrong. So, well, but yeah, but if you're right and you communicate without love, it does not matter how right you are. If you are a Christian, 
and somebody opposes your decision out loud to not live with your significant other until you're married, and you decide that the best course of action is to point out all the failed relationships that person has had, you may be right, but it will not give you the result you think it will. All you're going to do is prove right everything that that person has ever thought about Christians. If you say it without love, it will not be effective. It doesn't matter what we say if we can't say it in love. We've got to learn how to love well. Without love, all I know is insignificant. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, it says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, it's not your knowledge that will give you influence. People don't like know-it-alls. It doesn't matter if you can stand firm in an argument based in scriptures or facts or science to, to anybody who would disagree with what you believe in. That, that just it won't matter. It won't change their minds. Love changes minds. Without love, all I believe is insufficient. It's not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. Without love, all I believe is insufficient. If I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Jesus makes a statement in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus' most challenging message. You know, I, I, people will talk about wanting to hear a deep message, you know, wanting to hear a, a, a deep sermons. And what they really mean is they want something confusing. And that's great. But, but, you know, Jesus, everything that he always taught, it was very cut and dry, very clear. You know, he didn't get into the old, to the old languages a lot. He, didn't, he just would tell stories that people could understand. But he was considered deep. And it was because he would say things like this, where he would say, love your enemies. That was one of Jesus's deepest messages. Jesus said, listen, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, you will call out to me, Lord, Lord. Many will say, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform any miracles? God, look at all the, all the works that I did. Look at all the boxes that I checked. Look at all the, the, the different ways that I was religious in my life. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus because if you really believed in him, if you encounter him, you'll want relationship with him. And relationship with him leads you to become more like him. And Jesus is love. You fall in love with him. He wants you not just to know who he is, but to love and serve him. Without love, all I believe is insufficient. Without love, all I give is incomplete. If I give all I have to the poor, it's good to be generous. But there are so many reasons to be generous. Many are generous to ease their conscience. Some, some you're in giving to balance dishonest gain. Some are generous to gain God's favor. So many reasons to give, but there's only one correct reason. That's to give out of love. To give out of love. Our church does this so well. This is a generous church. You, you guys give so well. Just this year... We gave $25,000 to missions to start new churches to fund. Come on, somebody. That's good. That's a lot of money for a two-year-old church. That's a lot of money. $25,000 
in missions to start new churches across our country, to fund a school in Guatemala, to help people who are going through disasters like the city of Wilmington right now. Listen, our church gives a lot to help people, but we don't do it out of compulsion. We don't, our church doesn't give that much because we are required to. We don't give that much because we think there's something in it for us. We give out of love. We give because we want to see brand new, life-giving churches transform cities across this country. This year, ARC, our church planning organization, crossed the over 800 churches planted in 17 years. So far this year, we've launched 36 brand new life-giving churches. Come on, somebody. I'm just telling you. We give because there's kids in Guatemala and we want them to have a better future, to have, a better, to have better possibilities than what they were born with. We, we give to cities like Wilmington because when people are broken and hurting and when it feels like their life is falling apart, we want them to know that the church is here for them, that we see them, that they've not been forgotten and that we will care for them. We give out of love and it's different when we do so. See, without love, all I accomplish is inadequate. If I give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You know, Solomon was the richest man in the whole world. He gave his life to acquiring riches, knowledge, territory, and women. Dude had 7,000 wives. I don't know how he even had time for all those weddings. I mean, if you think about it, a wedding, one per day. I mean, this is a few years solid of just having weddings. That's a stressful lifestyle. And so anyways... Solomon has all of this to his name. More accomplishments is one of the, the most powerful rulers in the whole world. And at the end of his life, he sits down and he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, in which the refrain is, in which he, he says, I sat down and I surveyed the work of my hands and all I had done and realized everything is meaningless. And he says over and over again, everything is meaningless, and so many after him have done the same only to realize the same. See, at the end of days, there will be an audit on your life. You'll stand before Jesus, and he's not going to ask how much you accomplished. He's not going to ask how many works you did, how, many, how much money you made, how, how many of your goals you met. He's going to look at your life and see how well you loved people, because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. What if this was just describing the way Christians looked in our workplaces, the way we looked in our relationships, in our cities? And what, what, what if this described our culture? What if we could be an influencer in our culture, and this would be words that we would describe a generation with. Because to me, I feel like this is describing the opposite of a culture that I've seen. The, the way that we, we argue and fight and begin to hate one another over so many different things nowadays. Now it's gotten further and further to the divide between who believes this and who believes what and who votes this way and who votes that way and who stands for this and who stands against that. And the divide between us has gotten bigger and bigger. And what if this described us? What if it said we're kind and we're patient? We don't envy and we don't boast and we're not proud. It says love does not dishonor others. See, I love this because honor is something that I believe we are in deep need of right now as a culture. Honor. 
honor. Honor is given to those who don't deserve it. You see, respect is, is earned. Honor is given. Respect is earned. Honor is given. We give respect to the people who earn our respect. We're supposed to treat everyone with honor. Every person. We give honor to authorities that we don't agree with. We give honor to people that disagree with us out loud to our faces. We give honor to every person we encounter. We lift them up. We hold them up. We see in them what God sees in them. We see the potential. We see the purpose. We see the dreams. We see that they were created by a wonderful creator. And we give them honor because we are called to love well. We give them honor because love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Boy, we like to keep a record of wrongs, don't we? It's hard not to keep a record of wrongs. I'm going to tell you a story that I didn't get in trouble for yet, first service, and we'll find out if it gets me second service, okay? My wife, she likes to have either a bowl of cereal or a bowl of ice cream sometime between 9 and 10 p.m., okay? Now listen, she is a mom. She's got a baby that is attached to her body most of the day. You don't judge her for that. That's fine. She can have that snack. But what bothers me is at the end of the night when she's gone to bed and I'm kind of just getting the house all locked up, you know, and the lights off. Every single night, I got to take a bowl from the table where she sat over <laughs> to the sink. And through my head, I'm thinking, this is number 37, you know, coming right here. Here's bowl number 38. I'm like, it's five paces from the table to the sink. Why, why did she not make this journey herself? I saw her go there for a glass of water. Why am again bowl number 91 going in the sink? You know, a little bit of water so the ice cream doesn't harden. I'm just saying, right? And I'm keeping this record of wrongs. I had a realization, though, this week. I was talking to Robbie at work, and I was telling him, about the bowls. You know, I had mentioned, I'm like, man, I got to tell you, these bowls, bro, it's so hard. My life is so hard. But I had this revelation. I was taking one of her bowls. And what I do is I, I like to leave the living room looking nice. So I'll fold up the blanket she had and take her bowl every night. And I was folding up her blanket and then I was taking her bowl and I was just thinking to myself, man, I just, this is me. Like, I just have to carry these. This is the rest of my life. I'm be carrying bowls to the sink. And then I just stop and I think, man, what have I done around the house today so far? Like, oh, I have carried this bowl <laughs> to the sink. And I'm like, man, it's clean in here. Like, it's been vacuumed, you know. All my clothes are clean. I can't remember the last time I turned on the washing machine. And I'm sitting here in my head counting bowls that have taken me 14 seconds to carry to the sink. I think I'm going to say thank you instead of saying, can you help me with the bowls? Come on. I'm just saying, love keeps no record of wrongs. And this stuff is hard enough to do in marriage, but we're called to do it for everybody. And love is not easily angered. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. It always protects. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. You see, love never fails. This stuff is hard enough to do for your spouse or your significant other, but how in the world are we supposed to apply this kind of value to everybody? Let's look to Daniel to find out. Daniel chapter 1, verses 
6 through 5. This is getting towards the end of Daniel's life. Daniel is about to get thrown into the lion's den. God bless him, you know, but that's kind of one of the last things that happens to Daniel. He's been there 50 plus years, maybe 60 years. Daniel's been in Babylon. There's been a changing of who's in charge. The Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire, but the Persians just kind of did the same thing the Babylonians did. So Daniel's life didn't change a whole lot with the changing of the guard. And so Daniel's been forgotten a little bit because there's a new king in power, Darius, and he's kind of hanging out over here. But then there's a situation where Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. You can read it in Daniel chapter 5, and now he's getting in charge of things again. So look with me at Daniel chapter 1, and let's see where he's at. It says, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to appoint, that's the king, to appoint 120 satraps, that means managers, to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel is one of three guys in charge of 40 managers each that are over the whole kingdom. The satraps were made accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, the king planned to set him up over the whole kingdom. Daniel was a foreigner. Daniel was bought, brought to Babylon after his city was conquered. He was from nobility in another country. Daniel believed in a different God than what all the kings of Persia believed. Daniel, throughout his entire life, never once compromised who his God told him he was. Never once compromised his identity. Never once compromised his beliefs. Never once stood anywhere but firm in the word of God. He prayed regularly. He wouldn't bow to anyone who was not his God. And yet Daniel is set up as number two in command over the entire Persian Empire. And so the question is, what were those exceptional qualities? What was it that made Daniel so different that even the king noticed and set him up. It says that this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find the grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They, this is what happens anytime somebody starts winning, right? People around them get upset, and Daniel, he, he's, he's, being, he's being challenged by people trying to find something in his character of weakness, but they can find nothing because over the last 60 years, his character has remained strong, and who he is has stood firm, and he has loved people around him exceptionally well, so much so they can't find anything wrong with him. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So what were those exceptional qualities? What set him apart? Well, if we look at his life, we can see that a few things stick out. He's always polite, even when he has to disagree. He's respectful in the way that he treats people. He gives them honor, even when they don't deserve it. He's kind, but he's unmoving. People respected him when they didn't agree with him because he showed them honor. Daniel loved God. He loved people. He pursued excellence. And he chose joy constantly throughout his life. We need to learn how to love people in the same way that Daniel did. To love them even when they oppose us. To love people 
when they don't like us, to love people well even if they judge us, to love people well no matter how they love us, no matter how they treat us. We don't let this culture influence us or change us. Instead, we influence this culture through the exceptional qualities that allow us to love people around us well. Because people will not be influenced by your words as much as they will be influenced by your actions. Three ways that we can show people what it looks like to follow Jesus and stand firm while loving people well. Number one is this. Serve them. Serve people. Serve people. You were created to glorify God and serve others. And believe me when I tell you that nothing in this life will give you satisfaction until you learn how to live in that purpose. There's a specific way that you were created to do that. Our growth track is all about helping you discover your purpose so that you can make a difference the way you were created to, which is to serve others. No way communicates love to somebody else better than serving them. This is true in romantic relationships, in marriage. There's just no way for me to more clearly communicate to my wife that I love her than to take that bowl of ice cream from the table to the sink every night. Or even better, to go do a load of everybody's laundry, not just my own, because sometimes if I do laundry, I just wash my clothes. I get intimidated by hers. They're just more delicate. And so anyways, if I go and do everybody's laundry without her asking, fold it up, take care of it, put it away, she feels valued. If I get a night where I just choose to, to, to make sure that she gets to rest, where I'm taking the kids and caring for the kids, I make dinner, I get, I get, I get the house cleaned up, I get it taken care of. When I put the kids to bed, I pour her a glass of wine and just serve her. It will communicate to her that I love her far better than my words. And then after that, I'm going to go upstairs and light some candles. Come on, somebody. How many of you know? Come on, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You got to serve them well, and it's not easy, but somebody's got to do it, you know, and it means not getting your way sometimes, and listen, this is going to be hard for us this morning, but, but living a life where we serve others means it's not always going to be fair. So, see, somehow this lie got into our minds here as a culture where we just think everything's supposed to be fair all the time. We just think everything is supposed to be fair. It should all, I, I, all, I should get what everybody else got. Everything should be fair. And here's what, here's what I mean. I think that to love people well, that, it, that means that you should go clean the break room at work even when nobody's asked you to clean the break room. Now here's what I know will happen if you do that. Without it ever being said out loud, suddenly, after you do it two times, you will become the only person that cleans that break room. You will become the official break room cleaner. And you're going to be doing this. You're going to be thinking, hey, I was just trying to love my coworkers. Well, I'm trying to serve these animals. You know, they got, can't they just put a lid when they put stuff in the microwave? I'm just trying to serve these people well. And now I'm the only one that ever does this. And that's not fair because when is somebody going to serve me? But listen, love is not fair. We're called to clean that break room, even if people don't notice that we clean the break room. We're called to clean that break room, even if it means we become the only person who cleans the break room. We are called to serve people and to serve them well. 
Paul in Galatians. He says to clean that break room and do it to the very best of your ability because you are made new in Jesus and serving others is your best way to show it. I'll show you. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, you got to stop worrying about what's fair to you and you got to start serving others because your body has been crucified. Who you are needs to get crucified with Jesus. You need to become less and less so that he can become more and more and we live this out by serving others without expecting anything in return. That's what love is. Love is serving. To follow Jesus is to serve others. To love well is to serve others. And people can tell you that your religion is old-fashioned, exclusive, and offensive all day long, and it's fine. You're called to serve those people. Serve well. There's a story in Luke chapter 19 about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And Zacchaeus climbs up into this sycamore tree because Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a liar and a thief. You know, he got rich by stealing people's money. But that's what he did. He was a government official empowered by the Romans to steal from his friends and neighbors. People hated him. And truth be told, Zacchaeus hated himself. And he felt empty. And he felt like there had to be more to this life. And he felt like he didn't know how to move forward from here. And he was longing for somebody to tell him he had value. And he was longing for somebody to tell him there was more in this life. But he didn't know how to say that out loud. And so he just kept taking from others. And he just kept living the way the Romans were telling him he could live. And one day he heard Jesus was coming to town. And so he moves heaven and earth to be able to hear from this man Jesus that he has heard so much about. And when Jesus begins to speak, Zacchaeus finds what he's been looking for. He realizes that he was born for relationship with his creator. He realizes there's more to this. He's, re he's realizing that there is a way forward, that there is a way to change, that he can have meaning, that he can have purpose. And Jesus, after he talks, comes walking up to that sycamore tree and looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, what are you doing in that tree? I want to go to lunch with you. Let's go to lunch. Let's go get some lunch. And Zacchaeus gets down from the tree, and he goes to lunch with Jesus. Spends time with him. Jesus serves him by showing him value, by spending time with him, by looking him in the eyes, by treating him like a person instead of an enemy. And then it says at the end of that lunch, Zacchaeus went home, and he sold everything that he had so that he could pay back everybody that he had ever stolen from ten times over. What I want to know is what Jesus said at that lunch. You know, what, what did he tell him? You know, what, what, was the, what was the big change? You know what I think? I think they just had lunch. See, I think Jesus just connected with him. I think he just looked him in the eyes. I think he just made him feel like he had value. I think he just showed him what it looked like to serve and value somebody else. Because what I notice about Jesus is that he always connected before he corrected. He always connected with people, cared for people, served people before he showed them how they needed to change. Every time, every city he went into, he healed the sick, and then he taught. He healed the sick, and then he taught. When he would lift somebody up who had been in sin, he would heal them. He would change their life. He would show them a better way forward. He'd connect with them, and then he would call out their sin and invite them to change. You see, I believe if we want to love people well, if we want to see a real change around us, if we want to be able to influence, we've got to connect with people. We've got to love people 
by serving them. We've got to spend time with them. Listen, don't stand firm by calling out somebody's sin. Get to know who they are as a person first. Serve them. Connect with them. Show them that you love them through your actions, not your words. Second is we can set an example. Set an example. I believe Daniel set an example over and over again throughout the course of his life. We have to learn to share Jesus with our actions more than our words. Set an example. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Are you going to hide it under a bucket? No, I'm going to let it shine. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in its house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He's talking about setting an example. He's saying, let your light shine so that they can see how you're living, see who you're serving, see how you're loving, and they will give praise to your Father in heaven. Be salt and light in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your friends, for your family. And when they ask you, and they always do, why you are so different, why you're so much more approachable than everybody else at work, why do you treat people so well, why do you carry yourself with more peace, more satisfaction, what is it about you? Give them the answer. This is why we always point people who come to us. So many folks come into our church and they just say, I just want, you know, I need to get better. Like I've got to, I've got to get my life right. You know, I want to join a life group. I want to join the dream team, but I got to get my life right first. I got to get, I got to get my priorities straight. I got to get things figured out. I got to, I got to correct some things. Pastor, I got some things to change before I get too involved in the church. And I always just say, that's why you need to get involved in the church. That's the whole reason you need to be in a life group today. You need to go to Growth Track today. Go get yourself on the dream team. Listen, next week we are starting Growth Track. Step one is the perfect time to go to Growth Track, discover your purpose, and get on the dream team. And here's why. Because if you want to grow, get around people who will set the example for you. Get around people who are growing. Get around people who are pursuing Jesus. Get around people who are seeing themselves find freedom, and you will begin to find freedom. Set an example, and here's what will happen. The more you spend time with people who are growing, before you know it, that will be you, and you will be able to set an example for others. We've got to set the example. And then once we do that, we share Christ with them. Um, I've got a friend who came to me a few weeks ago. We get real nervous about this part, about, because honestly, you've got to love people well, and part of that is sharing Jesus. Like It's inviting people to church. It's it's telling them why you're different. It's all these things. and I mean, you, you, you want to love people well. You need to tell them about the joy that you have. And I've got this guy, that can, and people get intimidated about this because they don't know what to do or how to do it. They don't want to be those Christians, you know. They don't want to be weirdos. And, and, and so they're trying to figure this out. And this guy came to me a few weeks ago, and he just said, Hey, man, listen, it's real hard to be a Christian in my workplace. It's, it's, a, it's a big negative atmosphere there. Everybody is, is always communicating with, is always filled with so much negativity, man, and, and, and they don't like Christians, and they speak with such foul language all the time, and they speak degrading over other people, and it's hard to be there and not be like them. It's hard to be there and, and stand out and be different. It's hard to be there and not fall into that. What, what should I do? And I just said, man, you just got to be different. You need to just be different. Follow Jesus. Love well. 
Stand firm. Serve the people that you work with. And he came to me last week. This was a few weeks ago. And he came to me last week and said, Hey, man, I've been trying to live more like Jesus at work. I, I, I've been trying to do like you said, to serve people, to care for people, to stand firm. And we have this new guy, and he's been asking me a lot of questions about how to do this job. And a couple days ago, he said to me, Hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry if I always just follow you around and ask you too many questions. You're just so much more approachable than everybody else. And my friend said to him, well, I'm more approachable because I follow Jesus, and I'm just trying to be like him. You've got to let your actions set an example and then point them to Jesus. Tell them why you serve them. To, to, when they ask why you always clean that break room, say, well, I sure as heck don't enjoy cleaning up after your dirty behind. It's because I love Jesus. No, your words without love are ineffective. Don't say it like that. Just say, man, I just love to clean it because I love you guys and I love Jesus and this is how I'm called to live. Just, just keep living the gospel and when people ask what it is, give them the name of Jesus. You don't have to beat people over the head with the Bible. You don't, have to, you don't have to argue the gospel. You've just got to live it. Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as the Lord. In other words, just love Jesus. Try to be like Him. Serve like Him. Love like Him. Be kind, gentle, respectful, full of grace. And when you do this, it says you will always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, kind, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. Let people stand against you all they want. Continue to stand for them. Love people. Serve people. This is the way of Jesus. In the way of Jesus, how I act is way more important than what I say. St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. We can stand firm and love well in this culture. We don't have to change our identity to match the world around us. As a follower of Jesus, I don't have to compromise or water down. I can stand on the truth, even in the culture that contrasts it, that doesn't want to hear it, that doesn't believe it. I can stand firm on the truth of who Jesus is if I continue to live like Jesus. If I continue to love like Jesus, then I can confidently proclaim the name of Jesus. Because if my actions back up my words, then we can stand firm and love well, even in a culture that defies it. We can do both. And if we do, this culture can shift whatever direction it wants. It can, it can be anything that it wants to be. It can, it can believe in whatever it wants to believe. It can expect whatever it wants to expect. If we can stand firm and love well, then we will still know who we are in Jesus. We are redeemed. We are chosen. We are forgiven. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a holy nation, God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, God, that you've called us to this, God, that you've created us for this, Father. We thank you, Lord, for, for bringing us to this place, Lord, that we might love people well and stand firm for you. God, I just ask that you would be honored 
in everything that I do, God. Help, help, me, to, help me to live out this, this passage of love, Father, to, to behave that way, to look that way, Lord. God, I just ask that you would, that you would just be glorified in who I am. Be, be glorified in the purpose that I serve, God, that it might glorify you and serve others, Lord. We worship you. We worship your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.